Christmas morning, do you have memories? Maybe you're looking forward to it. Christmas morning is one of the few times when all is right with the world, right? Everything seems right with the world. Hot cocoa by a crackling fireplace, or this year, some cold lemonade while you're sunbathing. <laughs> but you get the picture. The sparkle in the eyes of a child as they open a present. Grandma's cooking, the smell of it in the air. The laughter of family. All is right with the world. Hallmark has made a killing off of this idea, along with a storyline of two beautiful 35-year-olds who happen to be single and fall in love wearing L.L. Bean sweaters in a sleepy little town in Vermont. Right? You've seen that movies. Um, all, but it's, it's just this idea. Christmas is one of the few times that all seems right with the world. Hey, if you're brand new here, let me introduce myself. I'm Carter McInnes. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop, and I'm so honored to be worshiping with you, whether you call this place home or, or whether you've found your way in here today or you're watching. And, and I want to tell you that though I love Christmas and that feeling of all seeming right in the world, I want to tell you that Christmas happened because all was wrong with the world. Christmas happened because of all that was wrong with the world. In fact, all the hot cocoa in the world can't cover up the brokenness that still exists, and it doesn't have to. This reality that, why, that all was wrong with the world, this reality is why God became human. And it's because of that night in Bethlehem, despite everything that is wrong with planet earth that every year we can still sing at the top of our lungs as you've already done this morning joy to the world joy to the world it is probably the most famous but it is absolutely the most published christmas hymn in north america the tune we are all familiar with was uh, recorded or or displayed and played in 1848 by a version from Lowell Mason, the tune that you sing it at now, but it was written 130 years before that. In 1719 by one of the, one of a, one of the most famous composers, a man named Isaac Watts. And he wrote Joy to the World based off Psalm 96, Psalm 98, and I hope you'll read those this week. You'll see some familiar imagery and Genesis 3, 17 and 18. And that's just kind of who Watts was. He, he wasn't just a Christmas song writer. He loved taking scripture and he became really a, a poet of deep theological thought. In fact, he was way more than just the writer of that famous Christmas carol, he wrote some of the most famous and well-known Christian hymns of all time. And I've asked my good friend Jamie Cole to help me with a few of Isaac Watts' greatest hits. Alas, indeed, my Savior blue, 
I'll give Jamie a hand. He's great, man. Thank you, Jamie. That's who Watts was. A great hymn writer, a great songwriter, and joy to the world was no exception. But Genesis 3, well, it's a little odd to base a Christmas song off of. I mean, if Jen, if you know much about the creation story, Genesis 3 is about the fall of humankind. And how in the world do you write a Christmas song about the fall of humankind? Well, Watts would say it's what Christmas is really all about. After Adam and Eve sin, God says this to Adam in the Garden of Eden right before they are banished from the garden. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Centuries later, the prophet Isaiah would pen these words in Isaiah 24 and talk about the greater and larger ramifications of what happened in the garden that day. Listen to what Isaiah says. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth, and its people must bear their guilt. That's the backdrop that Isaac Watts uses to write 
what I believe is his most theologically profound verse of joy to the world, but it's often a verse that we don't even sing. It's verse three, and if you kind of grew up in traditional church, you're right, you do verses one, two, and four. Just kind of skip over three. Most modern versions, we didn't sing it this morning, but I believe it's one of the most powerful verses. It says this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. That imagery sound familiar? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So I want to talk about a word that is central to understanding Christmas, and it doesn't much sound like joy to the world. I want to talk about this word, curse. Let's light a candle and sing silent night, right? I mean, that sounds like a merry Christmas. Christmas happened because we are under a curse. Let me explain what Watts was talking about and what's so critical that we remember as we celebrate the holidays. The Apostle Paul actually taught about this in a letter to a church in a community named Galatia. We call the letter Galatians. And this letter is, uh, is, a, is to a church struggling with this tension between law and grace. Uh, namely, for the Jews who had their whole lives followed what was called the law and what it meant, what their what it meant for their now new life in Christ. The law was more than just the Ten Commandments. That's kind of the most famous rendition of the law, but the law was even more than 613 Levitical laws. The law was a way of life. I mean, it it permeated everything in Jewish life. And so the question that they were trying to figure out is, now that we have come to faith in Christ, What are the ramifications for this way of life that we have always done and always lived in this new life in Christ? And their question was really twofold. Number one, if we now have faith in Jesus, do we have to continue following every step of the law as we previously had? And now that our church is different than the Jewish faith, our church has Gentile people in it, people that were not Jewish. And so if, if we have to follow the law, then to those that are becoming Christ and being adopted into this lineage of faith that, that through Jesus, that, that speaks all the way back through Abraham and Moses, do they too now have to follow all the laws that we've been following all our lives? What do we do with law, with these rules, with these prescriptions, this way of life, and grace? What does it mean for us? Well, um, there was just one problem with the law. Well, and maybe that's not even the best way to say it. Uh, There wasn't a problem with the law. We (laughs) are the problem with the law. And listen to how Paul says it in this letter written to a church that has Jews in it and Gentiles wrestling with this idea. He says it this way, and if you want to look in your Bibles today, we're going to be in Galatians 3 if you're at home and you got your Bible in your lap, and if you're here, you can have your app or your Bible, and if you don't have a hard copy, please take one at our, uh, at our bookshelves on the way out. It says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
well, why? Why would we be under a curse? I, I don't understand. The next half of the verse explains it. As it is written, cursed is everything, as everyone, who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The reason is because the law is about doing. And it is impossible, Paul says, for you to do everything in the law. The law isn't the problem, Paul says. The law points to God's righteousness, God's holiness, and no matter how hard we try, we inevitably can't measure up. The, the law highlights our unrighteousness, our ungodliness, our unholiness. Paul actually, right here, he quotes the, the first of four Old Testament passages in the next five verses. It's almost as if he's trying to say to them, I'm not teaching you a new teaching. He's telling all the Jews in the crowd, I'm teaching you from your scriptures. I'm helping you interpret them now. Listen, one of the ones he's quoting is from Deuteronomy. Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out. Paul says it right there. This is, this is not new information. I'm helping you understand what it means now, all those verses that you've learned. So how does this relate to you and me? Today, 2,000 years later. Well, if you have ever wondered, if you have ever thought, I'm just not good enough. You couldn't be more right. Listen to how Paul says it. Clearly, no one, no one, who? No one, not me, not you, not Paul, not Peter, no one. No one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Paul says, if you want a righteousness, there's another way to get it, to live by faith. And he says, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting, in all those verses, those little short verses right there, he quotes Habakkuk, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Leviticus. This is the crux of the gospel and the reason for Christmas. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. In fact, we're cursed. We're under the curse of sin and have been since the garden when God revealed the law, 613 of them to be exact. And we just realize how, how far off we are and how cursed we are. No one can keep up. Why does he say that? It's impossible to live up to the standard. It's impossible to, to be declared righteous by the law because the law is about what? It's about doing. Remember, it said, remember what it says? It's about doing. The person who, what, does these things. And you can never do enough. You can never do right enough. You can never do right enough to make up for all the times you did wrong. And the harder you try, have you ever noticed this? I do. The harder I try, the more I'm reminded of how incapable I am. 
of how, of how cursed I am, that I can't measure up, that it is impossible for me to do right. It's impossible for me to meet the standard. It's impossible for me to live according to the law. So the world needed someone who could measure up. Enter Emmanuel, God with us, who was called the Son of God and the Son of Man. One of us who could finally measure up. We needed someone to take on the curse head on. Listen to the next verses, what Paul says. Christ redeemed us from the curse, amen, of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. Your translation might say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's talking about the cross. And this is a prophecy in the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Through what? Through doing right? Through what? Through Jesus Christ. Not through following the law, not through, you know, doing everything to the letter of every rule. So that by faith, Paul writes, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Simply, Paul says this, Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus took the curse for us, God's judgment, God's punishment, and our guilt and our shame so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Did you hear that? So that by faith you might receive the promise of the Spirit. Not by doing, but by believing, by saying, I have faith, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, and risen. That's what my faith is in. In him. And through that faith, then I receive the promise of the Spirit. And Paul says that the coming of Jesus unlocked the promises of God for all who would believe through faith. The law. The whole thing pointed to this moment in history. This night in Bethlehem, Paul says. Indeed, this one person. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law. And why? Why would God do this? Because God didn't want us to be under a curse. God's design, intention, and his heart is for us to receive blessing. God is not a God who wants to curse. God is a God who wants for us to receive the blessing so that we can become heirs of the promises of Abraham. Long before Jesus and even before Moses, there was Abraham. And God told him an interesting thing. He said, I'm going to bless you and bless your seed and your descendants are going to be as many as the sands on the seashore and as many as the stars on the, uh, in the sky. And it's interesting. If, I hope you'll read all of Galatians 3 this week because Paul does a little bit of biblical interpretation in there. He says, guys, aren't you reading this closely? It doesn't say, that, it, it doesn't say Abraham's seeds Plural, it says Abraham's seed. 
And Paul says, that seed that came from Abraham is this one man, Jesus. And the cool thing is you can read Matthew 1 and it spells out the genealogy of Jesus. And you can see it go from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Paul says that it is Abraham's seed. The blessing, the promise was pointing to one man. The law, it seemed harsh. Right? It seemed harsh. It seemed like I can't measure up. It seemed in, in opposition to being a blessing. It was heavy. It's heavy to try to do right all the time. I mean, aren't you glad when you brush your teeth at night that your righteousness and your blessing and your reception as belonging to God doesn't depend on whether or not the person looking in the mirror at you did right that day? That's a heavy burden to bear. And Paul says, no, no, the law, though it seemed harsh, it seemed, it seemed heavy, it pointed to Jesus. The primary purpose was to impart righteousness through the seed. Christmas is about God's promise through Abraham taking root, and we sorely needed it, and we still need it. Because a lot of the world is still under a curse, as if Christmas Never happened. Listen to how Paul describes it. But the scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, so before we are in faith in Christ, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, there's a lot of really negative words in that passage, aren't there? Like locked up, um, under the control of sin, in custody. It's generally not a good thing if we say like, they're in custody right now, right? It's usually against your will. Those are some really negative words. What, what Paul is saying is that the scriptures, the scriptures have locked up and defined sin. And it can't be changed. And that we are, under the, we are under the custody of sin. We are a prisoner to sin before we come to faith. It, it, is, it is a very closed off world. It is a very closed off existence. It is, it is a placeholder over our lives. And the key that unlocks the curse is faith in Jesus. And as Jesus, as Paul said, Christ came that we might be justified before God, that we might be made right before God. That's what it means to be justified. Or as I said before, Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to reverse the curse by faith, by belief, by trust in Christ and his, and his death and resurrection. Now, but Paul is writing this letter Every single person he's writing this letter to has believed. 
Every single person he's writing this letter to has already put their faith in Jesus. And so it begs the question that I want to ask Paul. I want to say, well, hey, Paul, what happens, what happens for people who don't have faith in Jesus? What happens when, when that's present in the world? And he, here's what I think the answer is, that when faith lapses, the curse lingers. When faith lapses, the curse lingers. The curse remains where there is no faith. I mean, Jesus came to declare once and for all that the lock and the key had been broken and thrown away and it is open for everyone. He came once and for all to defeat the curse of sin, but you have to receive it by what did Paul say? By faith. You have to receive it. You have to believe it. You have to take a step. Just because Christmas happened in Bethlehem doesn't mean it's happened in you. Our faith in Christ justifies us. Jesus came to open the door to a new life, to reverse the curse. But when faith lapses, the curse lingers. And I know that to be true because I see vestiges of the curse lingering all over the world. The chaos of a world that has refused a blessing given to it. The curse put categories on us and we ate it up. The curse defined us by race or gender. The curse separated us into economical classes. The curse labeled us by our nationality. The curse said this group is better than that group. If you want to know why the world is so divided, there's an easy answer. We are under the curse of sin. And in this sin and in this curse, our identities get so wrapped up and secondary things, and we define ourselves by which side we're on. And this is why it is not a trite answer when we in the church say that Jesus is the only answer for the world, the only hope of the world. And we need to lean into this truth. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, Christmas started the fulfillment of a promise kept, and the promise is so rich for those who would receive it. The evidence of it would look so differently than the world around it. Paul says the evidence of this reality in our life, the evidence of this blessing, the evidence of this faith in Christ would look so distinct to the world. But think about who he's writing to. He's writing to a world where Jews didn't even talk to Gentiles. And Paul said if you would find faith in Christ, it would start erasing those lines. We live. This is a world Paul was talking to where women had no social status, no economic status, no political status, and men might made right. And Paul says, oh man, if you would come to faith in Christ, it would erase those barriers and those lines. This is a world where people are born into servitude or born into wealth. Paul said it would erase those. Paul says, when you come to faith in Christ, when the curse is reversed, this is what Paul said happened. Listen to this. So in Christ, you are all children of God 
through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither Republican nor Democrat, nor liberal nor conservative. There is neither suburban nor urban nor rural. There is neither black nor white nor Hispanic nor Native American nor Asian. There is neither American nor Mexican nor Canadian nor African nor European nor South American nor, nor Middle Eastern. There is neither Vestavia nor Hoover nor Homerud nor Mountain Brook. There is neither Pelham nor Alabaster nor Crestwood nor City of Birmingham. Paul says, you are one in Jesus Christ. Christ came to reverse the curse, to break down the barriers around us. He came to earth that we are no longer under the curse of our cursed labels and divisions in this world. That's what Christmas is all about. The baby in the manger would hang on a tree and reverse the curse for us. And here's the message of Christmas that Paul says. God gave his child so that you could be a child of God. God gave his child so that you could be a child of God. We throw that term, child of God, out a lot, don't we? And sometimes we get it wrong. Oh, they're just all children of God. Oh, we're just all a child of God. Paul says you're only children of God through faith in Christ. And without him, what are we? Cursed. Broken. Not enough. We are under custody to the law. We fall short of his goodness and righteousness, but by his faith we are by faith we are called his children. We are sons. We are daughters of God. And you are not defined by the labels of this cursed world anymore. This is why true unity is found in Jesus Christ. Our unity in Christ is the only unity of the world because we are unified in our brokenness and our cursedness. That's what we are unified in. When you finally admit and come to Jesus and say, I am broken, I am sinful, I am cursed, but for the grace of God go I in Christ Jesus, it's really hard to think you're better than anyone else after that. Right? That wipes away our skin colors and our backgrounds and our nationalities and our ethnicities and our political leadings and what team we cheer for. Everything is moot at the foot of the cross because we're cursed. But for the grace of God, go I in Christ Jesus. And then Paul wraps it up. God gave his child so that you could be a child of God. Paul wraps it up in the very last verse. He says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If 
you have faith in Christ. If, then you are part of Abraham's family. If you are in Christ, no matter how much you feel like you don't measure up, you were one of the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore that was promised to Abraham. You're in, daughter. You're in, son. God gave his child so that you could be a child of God. You are an heir to the Father. And I want to tell you something about your heavenly Father and his will. You know he has a will? Did you know that? He's leaving you everything. He's leaving you everything. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And if you still feel like the curse is found in you sometimes, and you still feel like you carry the weight of the curse, you don't have to. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done for you. God gave his child so that you could be a child of God. And friends, that's why we sing joy to and for the world. 33 years after that night in Bethlehem, there was a night in Jerusalem that reshaped and redefined Bethlehem for everyone from Jerusalem to Birmingham. When Jesus took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. I'm taking on the curse to be a curse, to reverse the curse for you. Take it and eat it. And every time you do it, remember me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. There was an old covenant, the law. You guys didn't do so well. I'm paraphrasing. I think Jesus said something like that. It's okay. This is my blood, Jesus said, of the new covenant. And it's poured out for you. And it's poured out for the many that will come after you. And every time you drink it, you remember me. We come out of the joy of the Lord that is our hope and our strength. And we have joy because God became a human in Bethlehem. But let us never forget that we have joy because God became a curse in Jerusalem. During our closing song, I'm going to invite you up to come and grab one of our uh, 
one of our small communion packets. If you need to be gluten-free, there are some that are uh, gluten-free on every table. And I want to invite you to take it back to your seat uh, and uh, remain standing. The band's going to lead us in a song. And just at some point during that song, after you do some time with God, if you'll just open it right there and, uh, and receive it as, as you see fit in that time. You're welcome to kneel down here up front and receive it up here if you'd like to do that. But my hope and my prayer is that as you come, you would just do the one thing Jesus asked you and me to do. Whenever you do this, you remember him. Remember that a baby in a manger became a savior on a tree. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that you gave your child so that we could become a child of God. Amen.